0: Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. St. John concludes his account of the wedding feast at Cana with these words. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. John uses the unique term signs, but most of the time we speak of miracles. And normally, we focus on the beneficiary of the miracles. There, the wedding couple spared the social awkwardness of a wedding feast cut short. The leper that asked to be cleansed. The ones that couldn't ask. I'm thinking especially of the demoniac with a legion of devils. Or the paralytic, the blind man. The woman who snuck up behind Jesus just so that she could touch the hem of her robe. Or the really big ones. Jairus' daughter. The widow's son. Leazarus. All restored to life. But of all the miracles of Jesus, today's miracle does not have a direct beneficiary. Jesus walked on water for his own convenience. It was his way of getting across the Sea of Galilee. It is easy for us to get distracted by the details of the story, the minutiae about the boat and the sea and the disciples. But this morning, I would like to turn our attention away from those details and focus on this story as a revelation of who Jesus is. In John's word, to catch a glimpse of the manifestation of, the goal of His glory, the revelation of the carpenter's son from Nazareth as comforter, as an enabler, and as a savior. First, Jesus as a comforter. What is the terror in the text? Too often we confuse this story with the one in Matthew chapter 8. There, Jesus is with the disciples in the boat. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. So they woke him up. Save us, Lord! We are perishing! But this is not that story. It's a problem in our text. We read, When evening came, the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. At least half of the crew were experienced boatmen. They may not like it, they may be tired of rowing by the fourth watch of the night, someplace between 3 and 4 a.m., but they were not in danger of sinking. They were not afraid of the sea. But then, Jesus appears, walking on the sea. That's what's scary. That just doesn't happen. You know, sometimes we accuse the disciples of being uneducated fishermen. The visitors in Jerusalem ask, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans, implying that they must be uneducated, unsophisticated. But really, from a literary point of view, we must give Matthew a lot of credit for the structure here in verses 26 and 27. First, there are three elements on the book. The disciples are terrified. They make a faulty identification, and then they cry out in fear, It's a ghost! And then Jesus matches them. Step by step. Terrified? Take heart. A ghost? No, it is I. Crying out in fear? Do not be afraid. Jesus comforts the terror of life. Step by step. Or rather, step for step. In an interview for his book, The Folly of Prayer, author and pastor Matt Woodley shared a story about his friend Teresa. Teresa was experiencing what St. John of the Cross calls the dark night of the soul, a period of spiritual loneliness and despair. Over the course of describing her story, listen to how Woodley discovered that what seemed most helpless in his ministry was actually the most powerful. He writes, After marrying the man of her dreams, Teresa dropped into the abyss of a deep depression. Everything went dark in her mind and body even started writing her obituary, three years ago, I would have had plenty of answers and solutions for her. I would have been so clever and powerful. But now I can only sit in her pain. We prayed. I didn't know what to do. I didn't have any answers. So I said, Teresa, I have no idea what to say. So could we just read the Psalms? And I read Psalm 77 an agonizing psalm of lament. And I went home. I left feeling utterly powerless. And I sure didn't think that I would made her feel any better. Next week, another leader from our church visited Teresa. She was still suffering intensely. But when the leader asked if he could pray for her, Teresa said, yes. But before you pray, please read Psalm 77. I've been clinging to it all week. It's my lifeline to God. When we read Psalm 77, in utter powerlessness, God showed up in her life with power. Quiddly adds, at times the best, most powerful, and most useful way to love someone is to get to the end of myself or yourself. To admit that I can't fix or change you, my words and my advice won't heal your brokenness, but I can be with you, and we can go together. To the Father. Close quote. I don't know your dark night or dark nights of the soul, but I do know that they will come. Where do you find comfort? In His Word. In His Word that was connected to simple water and poured over your head, just as it was poured over Porter's head this morning. A word that kills and makes alive. A word that declares, You are mine. And as the baptized, we proclaim with the disciples in awe and in confidence, truly, you are the Son of God. So Jesus comforted the disciples, so He comforts us, and then He enables us. That is, Jesus makes the impossible possible. Peter's walking on water was no simple circus trick. In his doubt, in his little faithlessness, Peter cried out, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus responds with one word, Huh. There are plenty of things, negative things, we could say about that exchange. Why did Peter doubt, not once but twice, challenging Jesus to prove himself by another miracle? Why did Jesus allow himself to be tested in this way? What will it take Peter to make Peter believe that is the clear word of God is not sufficient? But the simple fact of the text is this. Jesus enables. He made the impossible possible. Peter got down out of the boat and walked on water. The doctor told Marcia Mark and her husband that they need to accept the fact that they will never have biological children. Amid the discouragement, Marcia clung to her friend's words Somehow, Marcia, God is going to use your struggle with infertility for his glory. Marcia began to pray for a glimpse of that glory. In her words, I asked everyone I knew to pray. Why? Well, One five-year-old girl gave God a suggestion. She prayed, Dear God, please send Marsha the baby. Maybe someone could give her one, or she could just find one on the street. Amen. My husband, Marsha Wright, stopped praying when he realized that I was beginning menopause. Being a scientist, Tom had seen all the facts. In his lifetime, he'd never seen prayer change facts. I made an appointment for some tests, including one more pregnancy test. They looked at me with pity and said, No, you haven't had any cycles for seven months. Asking for another pregnancy test indicates you're not accepting things as they are. I begged for one extra test and finally convinced them. The test came back positive. Over the next 14 days, I had four more pregnancy tests and three more sonograms at the hospital's request. I think this time they were having trouble dealing with the facts. My full term pregnancy was uneventful unless you count every day bathed in praise for the answer to our prayers. On October 27, 1996, Amanda Joy was born. We called her Miracle Mandy. I think we often overlook God's enabling work. God is in the miracle business, after all, right? Whether it's walking on water or miracle babies, unusual answers to prayer catch our attention. But they're not the norm. We need to remember that God's enabling work Includes all his first article gifts house and home, wife and children, land, animals, and all that I have, as Luther explains in the small catechism. Is your every breath any less a miracle than miracle many, from Peter's walking on water? The words of our Old Testament text are appropriate here. Where were you when I founded the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it take hold of the skirts of the earth and shake out the wicked? Jesus enables both the miraculous and the mundane. So we, the disciples, say, truly, you are the Son of God. Jesus is our Comforter. He walks into the dark places with us. Jesus is our enabler. He makes possible the impossible, but especially Jesus is our Savior. In the text, Peter is the one who gets saved. The grammar of our text would suggest that Peter got all the way to Jesus, but when he saw the wind, things changed. Some Greek texts add the modifier strong wind as if to excuse the end result, Peter's being afraid. But stronger light. His faith wavered. His feet sank. Literally, he began to drown. Lord, save me! And immediately did you catch that in the text. Immediately, without delay, without question or qualification, Jesus reached out his hand to call them. Glenn and I chartered a boat to go fishing on the Flathead Lake this past week. I've been on plenty of charter boats fishing over the years, and there's always the requisite safety talk in preparation to leaving the dock. But this was different. It was different because on, on parting boats, there is always a captain and a deck <coughs> on board. Two people concerned about the management of the boat. Not the it was just the skipper. And the first thing on the agenda was not where the location of the life jackets were, or the proper use of the marine head. It was the life ring. I may be standing on the stern deck or working over the rail and fall in, Charles says. If that happens, this! And he plucked the remote control out of the cup holder. This! controls the motor. One of you grab it and punch M O B. man overboard. And the other one grab the life ring. it will be right behind the captain's seat and throw it to me. We're going to be strolling for lake, Charles, and I will never catch the boat unless you stop the boat. He was asking us, instructing us how to save his life. If that happened, if he fell overboard, Charles wouldn't need any encouragement. He didn't need better techniques nothing less than outside intervention can rescue him from eventually succumbing to a watery demise. You and I are no better equipped or trained in the sea of life. Unless someone, a Savior, stops the boat and throws us the life ring, we will perish. So God sent his Son. Paul summarizes God's rescue operation in his first letter to Corinth. I deliver to you as of first importance What I also received from Christ, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. So we, with the 500 and the Twelve and the disciples, say, Truly, You are the Son of God, our Comforter, our Enabler, our Savior. In summary, I'd like to point you to Jesus' last words in our text. His rebuke to Peter. Oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? Sometimes, each of us must endure that rebuke. But it is also a word of encouragement. How oh, so? Well, how much faith does it take to save any When we feel shaky, when our spiritual knees are knocking, it is precisely that that reassures us of our salvation. Only the redeemed, only you and I know this feeling. In our weakness, we pray with the father of the demoniac, I believe, help my unbelief. And he does. Jesus reveals himself as Comforter, Enabler, and Savior. Amen. Now may the peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.